This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. So welcome to um, the Bronfenbrenner Center's Doing Translational Research podcast. I'm Chris Wildeman, director of the Bronfenbrenner Center and your host. Um, I'm here today with Jamila Michener, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Government. Um, here at Cornell University. Her work focuses on poverty, racial inequality, and public policy in the United States. And her recent book, Fragmented Democracy, Medicaid, Federalism, and Unequal Politics, examines how Medicaid affects democratic citizenship. So before we go into um, a a more formal sort of Q&A, I did just want to say that Jamila is the only person who's been affiliated with both the University of Chicago and the University of Michigan, who I actually think of as being nice. So I feel like you've accomplished things both personally and professionally already. Um, oh, wow. Apologies to all of the other people out there affiliated with both of those institutions. I mean, nobody at University of Chicago is listening to a podcast that's about doing translational research. So I think we're all right. Fair point. Michigan maybe was a misstep in retrospect, but we'll go with it. So... To, just to thanks so much for coming. You you know that you are totally one of my favorite people. Um, so, I I guess I just wanted to have you talk a little bit about sort of what your core research interest is, or you know what you think of as kind of being the the big questions that you're trying to tackle. So at the core of my research interests are really, and this is funny because it's not the way most people's research interests work, but this is the way it works for me. That's really a set of people whose lives I'm interested in understanding better. And those are the people at what I often call the margins, right? People living in poverty, people of color, uh, people who, have, who face the most significant social and economic challenges in our country. And as a political scientist, the way that I make that relevant to my discipline is really to think about and ask questions about how public policy and social programs affect the lives of those people, right? And in particular, um, how policies affect their political lives, right? So the extent to which they're a part of and able to influence our democracy. Those are the questions for the most part. Sometimes I drift, but I'm usually at that core. And what... I guess this sort of kind of severely marginalized populations or populations on the fringe, when did you kind of develop that interest? And did you develop that interest and then saw political science as kind of the the mechanism for developing it? Or was it the reverse? I <laughs> know. Yeah. My mom told me this when I was in graduate school and I was struggling a bit. And I said, maybe this isn't for me. And she sent me this letter that I had written to David Dinkins, the mayor of New York City at the time when I was like eight. And she was like, this has always been for you. (laughs) And in the letter, I essentially write to Dinkins about like being a poor black kid in New York City and seeing people around me struggling and wanting to help. So I would say I've probably always been interested in those issues. And in part, it comes from like personal experience, you know, and in part, it comes from a kind of passion that I developed early in college. The very first semester of college, I took a course called The Sociology of Poverty. Um, and 
I've always been interested in Sarah McClanahan. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, cool. I, I have yeah, to remember, yeah, you're yeah, a sociologist. Yeah. You would actually know that. Well, and I went to Princeton, and Sarah was yeah. on my dissertation committee. Well, well see, <laughs> of course. I'm so used to talking to political scientists whom I expect to know very little about poverty. Sure. <laughs> um, and so at first I thought sociology would be the mechanism, the disciplinary mechanism for me. And then I took some political science classes, and I liked them, but I didn't see my interests in poverty and inequality reflected in them. And at some point along the way, probably as I started thinking about graduate school, it struck me that my work would be more unique in political science, right? And it also struck me that the core questions that I was interested in were questions about power. And at that time, I wasn't sure whether sociology was a place where I could pursue those questions, you know? Hindsight is twenty twenty, <laughs> so I, I don't know that I think that now, um, but yeah, political science is where I ended up. And how do you think about, I mean, I guess one thing that I, I feel like I've never fully gotten my head around in terms of differences between political science and sociology <laughs> is like um, kind of how marginalized populations agency is perceived, like, can you... This is just more like for my intellectual interest and because I have a captive audience right now with you. <laughs> I but can't like, escape. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess, can you talk a little bit about sort of how you think about agency or how you think the discipline thinks about agency? Because that strikes me as a, an area in which you're moving political science, but I know nothing about political science, so I could be wrong. <laughs> you could know a lot about political science, and you wouldn't find much mention of agency, okay. um, at, at least not in the kind of, in the form that you're thinking about it and talking about it. So when I was in graduate school, I wanted to, my very first dissertation prospectus was a dissertation prospectus all about the agency of marginalized populations in the discipline of political science. And my advisor said, this is way too much. You will accomplish this across your career, but not in a dissertation. You have to actually pick something specific. Thank goodness for Kathy Cohen. But um, so I think that you're right. I think that's part of where I'm trying to push the discipline. There's very little thinking about agency in political science. A lot of the prime movers and actors and shakers are elites, and we understand often tacitly without even really interrogating explicitly that they have agency, that they have influence and power, and we study how it operates. And then when we look at the folks at the kind of quote-unquote bottom, they're much more sort of passive um, victims of various political and social processes. And so part of what my work tries to do is understand how um, people who are marginalized are affected by political processes, but not stop there in a way that denies their agency, but then think about how they respond in relation to those processes. And so that's where their agency really comes to the fore. That's, you know, it's amazing. You say you don't know a lot about the discipline, but you zoned in on like the core of what I'm trying to do. I'm sure Vejla just told me that at some point. <laughs> Vejla Weaver, who we both know pretty well. Who's one of the other... few other political scientists who I would say takes agency seriously. Yeah, no, it's really funny. Like, in my mind, political science takes agency very seriously. But then I, I realize that that's, like, because I'm friends with, like, four people who are really disgruntled that it doesn't and are really trying to advance that agenda. So I I will embarrass myself less with political scientists now, so I appreciate that. Or embarrass myself in a different way, maybe. Uh, so you, you know, uh, this specific group... Um, is kind of what you're primarily interested in. And I, I know that you 
engage with sort of community organizations um, and kind of individuals um, in a in a more kind of vigorous way than I generally think of political science as um, doing it as a discipline. So can you talk a little bit about sort of how those relationships evolve or, or how they start and then also what you see as some of the challenges of, of doing what, you know, what we would call, I think, translational political science. Yeah. Which you can coin in your tenure packet. <laughs> I will take that advice. I'll take any and all tenure advice. Uh, so, you know, for me, at the beginning of, for example, the work that I, I, that I did on the book, I had some hunches about how things worked. And I even had some quantitative data that I looked at. But I felt like I didn't really understand how the pieces were fit together. And I also felt like I didn't just want to make it up. And so it, it appeared to me that the best thing to do would be to talk to people. And for the book, I talked to two sets of people. One is just individuals, right? So the book is about Medicaid, and I talked to Medicaid beneficiaries all across the country who had experienced the program in different ways. Uh, and then the second group of people that I talked to in the book, I called them, you know, stakeholders, relevant stakeholders, just people who engage Medicaid beneficiaries but aren't themselves. So public benefits attorneys who represent beneficiaries when their benefits are being taken away, and community advocates and community organizations that do health advocacy, because they understand the system in, from a different vantage point. And so for the process, the actual research process of writing the book, talking to these folks um, made a sort of major difference in the direction that I went. So, you know, it's funny, federalism is in the title of the book, and a lot of the focus of the work is on heterogeneity across places. I did not start there. I ended up there because when I started to talk to people on the ground, it's all they were talking about. So in a, in very large part, like connection to people um, and to various kinds of stakeholders shapes my work. But since the book has been published, it's kind of taken that those relationships have taken on a different role um, because a lot of those folks have reached out to me and said, so the number of community organizations, healthcare collaboratives, public hospitals, I mean, I can go on and on that have reached out to me since the book was published and said, wow, you're doing this work. You know, we we have a group of people that we're working with who this is relevant to. Can you come speak to us? Can you consult with us? Can you help us to figure this out? That's been one of the most rewarding parts of the book is feeling like there are a bunch of people who care about it who are not academics mm -hmm. and who are trying to think about how to draw on insights in the book to apply to the work they do. Um, so that's been really fun. It's also been really hard because academia isn't structured to reward that kind of engagement. So, you know, I spend a ton of times like going to health policy organizations, annual meetings and collaborating with them. And some people are like, well, that's nice, but it's not going to get me tenure. Right. So for me, it's always a balance between, you know, my own passion for engaging in that way and what makes sense, given the kind of con constraints of academia and I probably err more on the side of doing what I want to do, but we'll see how that works out. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, I guess one, one kind of parallel thing, um, just building off what you, you said, I mean, how have you, as somebody who's going through the tenure process, who's really engaged sort of in the community within the discipline, but also externally, I mean, I, like I know you're doing stuff with, the Cornell Prison Education Program. I know that you've been doing some things with the local jail, yeah. right? And so I guess it, it would just be interesting to hear a little bit how you 
how you manage those commitments and if you have advice for folks trying to to think about managing sort of these competing demands on time? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I'll be honest and say that thus far my approach has been trial and error. And usually that works by me encountering some sort of opportunity, a local community organization or an organization somewhere comes to me and says, we know about your work or, you know, we know about your research. Do you want to teach in prison or do you want to be on our data development team for this organization? Do you want to help us? And for the most part, you know, I my initial instincts have been to say yes. <laughs> and then at some point along the way, I've realized this is probably more than I can handle. And so I've tried to develop strategies for kind of triaging and deciding what are the things that I care about the most. And so, you know, one of my criteria is, you know, locally, I really am going to focus more on issues around incarceration um, and prison and jail, even though that's not where a lot of my work lie, because there's a lot of opportunity for changing in those areas in this community. But nationally, with national organizations or organizations in other states, you know, I'm not sort of physically present in a way that allows me to help them with the nuts and bolts of what they're doing. So I'll limit the kind of expertise I lend to those further away actors to being really narrowly within my wheelhouse, right? Mm. So I try to develop some criteria. And then another criteria I have is that if someone asks me to do something and my sort of initial impression is that I'm not excited about it, I don't do it. So there are enough things on the table that I'm really excited about. I can't even do all of those. And so I definitely won't sort of people please my way into doing things that I'm not excited about. But beyond that, I've had to like kind of develop, actually Veshla Weaver, who we mentioned earlier, gave me this great advice of having a group of people you can bring things to and say, this seems really exciting. I think I want, might want to do it. What do you think? It's like you're no team. And they say, you should probably say no to this one. And often it's because they have experience and they can see out into the future what the pitfalls are. So, you know, a little less trial, a little less error. So I'm trying. I, I don't think I successfully have developed a method yet, but I think at the end of the day, there's more good work to be done than, than it is humanly possible for any of us to do. So you just have to make choices. Cool. That's helpful. And I should say, if you ever decide that you just want to completely switch to criminal justice on everything, there are a bunch of us here who are supportive of that decision. So we could be your yes committee for that instead of your no committee. That's not helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I know. I'm well aware. I'm, that's not my role. Um, so to, to shift kind of more directly back to research, so I guess what are the... Um, what are kind of the two or three things that you would really like folks to take away from your work? So, um, and it could be the book, it could be earlier stuff, it could be stuff you're working on now, but like, you know, what are the kind of two or three things that you'd like people to take away? So I think probably some of the core kind of principles that lie at, at the heart of my work is this emphasis on the relationship between public policy and our democracy. And I think there's something that political scientists already know, which is that public policy affects democratic outcomes, right? Whether people engage, how much they're incorporated into our political system. What I would want to sort of layer on to that is that those effects are really different for people who are at the margins, and we don't understand them well. But what we do understand is that one of the ways that we have to evaluate policy is with a metric of kind of determining how much that policy is playing a role 
in alienating or sort of othering the folks who are at, um, you know, at economic and racial disadvantages. And so I think that's not a way we think about public policy. We think we can measure how efficient policy is or how effective it is with all of these economic and social outcomes, and those are important. But if we have efficient, effective public policy that is weakening our democracy, then we won't have efficient, public, effective public policy for long, right, in the long run. And we won't have equitable public policy at the very least. So I think really what I want people to know is that public policy matters for democratic inequality. And we should be evaluating policy outcomes with that, among other metrics, in mind. And to do that, we need to know more, but we also need to think more and talk more about that set of relationships. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, all right. So the so final question. Uh, no, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> let me let me pivot because there's something that you've said a couple times, and um, and I've just been curious about it. So we'll 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 hold the final question just for a sec. I can you talk a little bit more about how things vary sort of ac- across place? Is it like you know street level bureaucrats kind of county and lower level sorts of things that matter is it like state level policies is it like an urban rural thing like (laughs) i i just you know i think we're always you know kind of isolated out here and so i i think about rural spaces a lot more than i used to like in appalachia like that was just where i'd go to get beat up um (laughs) but you know it, it it's different now at this age I guess but uh, but I guess it would just be interesting to hear you talk a little bit more about place and space yeah so you know the answer to the question of which of these do I focus on is all of the above uh, so in the book you know there's a chapter or two chapters where I really focus on state level variation and at the state level policies like policies that have to do with health policy and Medicaid are really dramatically different and that maps directly onto political outcomes, whether people vote, whether they engage in politics in a number of different ways. But one of the things I really try to do in the book is push past just thinking about the state level, which is a really sort of you know high-end way of thinking about, far-up way of thinking about things. And so states make policies, and that reaches down into people's lives. But in the book, I try to reach further and further down. So there's a a chapter where I focus on counties and bureaucratic administration in sort of welfare agencies and counties and how that actually also affects other kinds of political outcomes and in very distinct ways than than we see at the state level, right? So I look at county level processes in a number of different states and see how like both those levels layer on. And then there's a chapter where I look at neighborhoods. And and one of the things I find is that, you know, people's experiences, so for example, people's experiences with Medicaid, they differ at the state level because of different policies. They differ at the county level because of different administrative apparatus. Um, But they also differ at the neighborhood level because of access to different kinds of institutions. So how, whether or not you can get to the clinic, what the clinic's like right? Mm -hmm. Whether on the way there you're going to pass drug dealers and people shooting up. um, And that experience actually affects your experience with the state level policy that ostensibly like every Medicaid beneficiary in the state has access to the same thing. But in practice, no, because Mm -hmm. some of them are embedded in in rural areas where it's really hard to find a provider. Some of them are embedded in urban areas where you can find plenty of providers, but you're going to risk your life going to the neighborhoods they're in. And those super local dynamics matter a lot too for the relationship between public policy and political participation. So part of my, like, you know, 
my way of approaching place is to think about it in a multifaceted sense and not just think place means neighborhood or place means county or place means state. Place means all of those things and those things are layered on and they're affecting individuals all at the same time, right? Which is super complicated, it's difficult causally, but when you talk to people, they literally tell you that, right? <laughs> so we can't, it's, you know, empirically the temptation is to isolate one aspect of place and just focus on that. And I do that in some of my work. Um, but, you know, the bigger picture for me is to really think about how, how all of these different manifestations of place um, kind of coexist and affect people at the same time. Cool. All right. <laughs> it's a my, lot. My, my curiosity is satisfied now, so thank you. Um, so, so the final question is just sort of, if there's one real world change or policy change or whatever you uh, could make that saying out loud pre-tenure would not cause you problems, <laughs> what would what would that be? This is probably the hardest question for me. And it's actually one that I never think about. Um, and that might be the bias of academia is that we just focus so much on the knowledge and not so much on what that one different change we would want to be. I mean, for me, that one change would be for public policy. So for all policies to have a built-in component um, that addressed the kind of the kind of political effects of that policy, right? I think that there are a lot of ways that public policy could be leveraged to bring more people into the electorate and to make our democracy, democracy more equitable. A ton of ways, right? We could design public policy for democratic equality. Um, instead, it's really not even on our radar. And so, I mean, what that means is, in specifically would vary policy by policy. Um, but if we could sort of, if I could change the way that people orient themselves towards policy design, such that both at the state level, the national level, and the local level, across the levels, we were thinking about structuring public policies in ways that would bring more and different people into our political system, that would be lovely. But that's because you asked me a question that, you know, put me in the kind of Pollyanna, if I could do anything space, which I enjoy. Yeah. And how would you, I mean, I guess, so, I mean, it's one thing, so that would be both designing the policies, thinking about that, but probably also thinking about things like messaging Yeah. and like having a broader, having bringing, bringing people in be a broader kind of part of the policy apparatus. Yeah. So... Th- that messaging matters and framing, right? Because that's hard to do, for example, when we stigmatize policies. Sure. When we say like, well, now we're gonna make you jump through 50 million hoops and we're gonna implement work requirements, we're gonna make you drug test. And there are all sorts of messages sent through through that kind of policy approach. And those messages are alienating people from the political system. Um, and so what I would wanna do is think kind of explicitly and implement policies that do the exact opposite of, of those sorts of things. Sure. <laughs> That sounds great. Yeah, you know. Maybe that's book number two or book number three. <laughs> I'm already at book number three. That'll have to be book, in my mind at least. Okay. That'll have to be book number four. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, well, thanks for talking to me. This thanks has for been having fun. me. It's really fun. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.